Why is diabetes prevention important? And what is small steps for big change? How can community programs be translated into different contexts to improve accessibility? And how can we get stakeholders involved to ensure that the outcomes measured and the program delivered are meaningful to the right people? For this episode, we will be focusing on the translation piece of moving the small steps for big change program into different locations and virtual formats. Today, we have Dr. Mary Jung and Tineke Denine joining us. Fun fact, did you know that Dr. Jung is currently reading Brene Brown? You can read the same book by checking the website link below. Hello and welcome to Raincoat. My name is Isabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to bring people like yourselves together to bridge the gap between current rehabilitation research and the general public. To get a clearer idea of who you two are, Mary, can you introduce yourself first and tell us how you got into the position you are in today? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah and Isabel. As uh, Isabel mentioned, my name is Mary, and I'm an associate professor at UBC on the beautiful Okanagan campus. Uh, I've been here for about 10 years, um, starting my research program uh, where I was studying in my PhD all about how to prevent type 2 diabetes or how to at least reduce the risk in those who have an elevated risk of developing this chronic disease. And so I guess I, I ended up where I am right now by following my passion, um, trying to uh, help people with the knowledge that I have. And for me, that lies in adherence to diet and exercise behaviors. Uh, so, you know, started off focusing in on, on what makes people tick, how do we help individuals self-regulate their health behaviors, um, to coming a lot more around uh, lately to recognizing that, you know, with the powerful forces beyond, go well beyond the individual and how do we assist people uh, best that they're empowered to make changes in the circumstances that they live in. But that's a long-winded way to say hello and thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, this is really interesting, and we will get into more details, especially into diabetes later on with Sarah. Um, I'm always really curious about what drives people. So what is it that drives you every day as a professor? Well, uh, uh, the thing that drives me is, is on the show with me right now, uh, Tineke Deneen, and I'm so fortunate to have research trainees like Tinica and um, about 10 other individuals that have been willing to to uh, leave their homes and join me here in Kelowna um, to join my diabetes prevention research group. These people are the experts with the most exciting ideas, with the energy and the motivation to really unpack, um, you know, the research questions that we want to answer. And so if that would be my one response in terms of what drives me each and every day is, oh my gosh, my outstanding team. They are incredible. Uh, Tinika, you probably feel that too. Can you tell us about yourself and your ambitions? 
Yeah. So just like Mary said, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So uh, my name is Tinika and I am a third year PhD candidate about to start my fourth year. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to be part of Dr. Mary Jung's lab and the Diabetes Prevention Research Group. Um, I worked a little bit in um, some diabetes clinical trials and I made the switch. I saw some of her work and really wanted to get more involved in diabetes prevention and working on um, community-based uh, efforts to help um, individuals who are at risk for diabetes. And so I'm just really excited to be here and uh, really excited to talk more, I'm sure, about everything um, in the Small Steps for Big Changes program and really excited about the impact that we're making um, in diabetes prevention. All right. So we're talking about diabetes, but Isabel and I, we don't really come from a diabetes background. So can either of you tell us what is diabetes and what are the differences? Because I've heard of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So let's start off with that. What's the difference? What is diabetes? Well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll start and Tinika, you can correct me as usual <laughs> where I go wrong, but exactly what you mentioned, Sarah, there's multiple types, um, even more than just type one and type two. Um, and and the, the classifications um, continue to be modified as we learn more about how, I guess, this pervasive disease is um, affecting the world, really. Um, so we know that in both situations, the type one and type two, the body's not able to adequately um, produce or react to insulin, which is one of the hormones that run through our bodies. And so that affects our ability to intake or, you know, consume the glucose that makes our bodies run. And so if we are not able to produce enough or we're not able to um, intake glucose that we eat, then we run into major problems because there's so many parts of our body that, that need that function to work, like our muscles, our heart, our brains, etc. So in the classic scenario, we would think that somebody who is of younger age, so a child or a young adult, if they have diabetes, we would assume that that's type 1 diabetes, um, something that they were born with, um, they don't have um, control over. And we have traditionally thought that people who are um, who have adult onset diabetes is more what we call type 2 diabetes, which um, a lot of uh, studies will demonstrate is, is um, can be prevented. Uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, around the world, we're seeing cases of type 2 diabetes in younger and younger individuals. So individuals in their teenage years or early adulthood years um, developing uh, type 2 diabetes. And there's lots of other forms. Gestational diabetes is another one where we see that females who are pregnant, they develop gestational diabetes, then it's the same scenario in terms of difficulty regulating insulin. It's during that specific period of pregnancy, and then that predisposes them to type 2 diabetes post-pregnancy, although it's not a guarantee. So why are people getting younger and younger when getting type 2 diabetes? Do you know why? Yeah, there's a lot of I suppose, so epidemiological evidence would suggest that 
Um, the reasons are because the risk factors that predispose anybody to type 2 diabetes, um, that of obesity, excess weight around um, the waistline, can of course be incurred or, or developed at a younger age. And that might be due to things like lack of enough physical activity, poor dietary behaviors. So once not happening at a young age is now is now happening. Um, but there is also really interesting research out of Canada demonstrating that there might be a genetic component in certain uh, geographical regions. So, you know, it's it's certainly not just volitional choice behaviors like diet and exercise, um, but those play a big role. Okay, and this might be a very straightforward question that I'm just not getting, but there's all these risk factors um, that put you at higher risk for diabetes, but at what point do you know you have diabetes? Like, you might show all these symptoms, but do you have to get tested to know, or is it like, oh, if you have like three out of five symptoms, you're 90% guaranteed to have diabetes? Like, How do you know? Yeah, um, so it's a good question. There's lots of tests that can <laughs> that um, see how you react to getting an intake of, of glucose. So the classic one that many women are uh, from females who have given birth are familiar with is um, a fasting blood glucose, <laughs> sorry, an oral glucose tolerance test or OGTT, which they give you this drink that kind of looks like the old school McDonald's orange drink <laughs> and you you uh, quickly consume that and then um, the doctors will test how what your blood glucose levels are. So how, how much of that are you intaking and, and absorbing, I suppose. Um, the other one that I mentioned was that fasting blood glucose test, which is when you would uh, go into a blood requisition clinic and after overnight fast, they would assess what your uh, blood glucose or blood sugar levels are at. And then uh, the final uh, one is this uh, assessment of, of hemoglobin A1C. And that's one where you don't have to fast. They just take a blood sample and see um, where your hemoglobin scores are at. Uh, and, and this gives an indicator of how well you've been controlling your blood sugars over the past three months. Um, but you're right. So we might have symptoms of type 2 diabetes um, or any type of diabetes being things like um, uh, relentless thirst, a continuous desire to urinate. Um, but the, you know, we wouldn't, we want to go only on symptoms. We, we need to get tested to make sure to fully understand where we're at, because it, it's almost like a, um, a spectrum disease where, you know, we can detect things a lot earlier before if we know the blood work results. Right, that makes sense. And kind of on the other side of the spectrum of diabetes, like why mm -hmm. is prevention important? Like are there any long-term consequences of having diabetes? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, it's, it's concerning and because there, the long-term consequences are, are drastic and um, unfortunately, yeah, just pervade the body progressively. And so um, when we have a lot of sugar running through our veins, essentially, um, it can cause damage um, in all parts of our body. So in our fingers, in our toes, in our eyes, um, and so much of our, um, our body where we have blood circulating through. And so um, when we, when we look at the numbers, um, 
you know, unfortunately, the greatest cause of adult amputation is type 2 diabetes. Um, we have problems like gout. We have problems like um, nerve issues in our eyes, which is eventually reduces eyesight and vision. Um, we have these complications, uh, particularly concerning but often overlooked, is cardiovascular disease. So we have the number one cause of death of people who have type 2 diabetes actually is, is cardiovascular death um, and event. And that's, you know, that's something that we really want to pay attention to because if millions and millions of Canadians have type 2 diabetes, then that means that we have millions of of deaths occurring from cardiovascular events. It's uh, it's an ongoing list. And, you know, we, we can, even in when somebody has type 2 diabetes, we have the opportunity to um, reduce those risks of those comorbidities. Um, but we have to first know that you have the disease. So prevention is definitely important. And just so I know, are there any treatments once you're diagnosed with diabetes? Can you get treated or you can only just manage it? How do you go about living with diabetes? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. There is a lot of promising ailments or ways that we can um, reverse the disease, which is is really new and up and coming uh, perception. So it used to be thought that if you have type two diabetes, that that was it. But now we know that um, with I would say possibly a bit dramatic, but um, very possible. Um, modalities with diet and exercise, you can um, reduce your numbers and, and essentially reverse or go into remission, type 2 diabetes remission. And like you mentioned, when we know somebody is, has prediabetes or is on that route, <laughs> blood glucose scores and HbA1c scores are going up, things are looking like they may develop type 2 diabetes if things don't change, we, we, we know we have a really high likelihood of being able to stave off type 2 diabetes from ever coming into their lives if they make some modifications to their diet and exercise. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Huh. I feel like I just got a quick 411 on all things diabetes right now, so very helpful. Thank you. Okay, Tina Kim, if I understand correctly, the program you're working with is called uh, Small Steps for Big Changes. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's what it's called. Okay, can you explain a little bit uh, about how you came to the idea of working um, on this program and what the actual gap is that you're trying to fill here? Yeah, for sure. So um, as I briefly mentioned earlier, um, I was working in Calgary um, in more clinical trials for individuals with type 2 diabetes um, when I realized that I wanted to make a switch and start working more on the prevention side and not just prevention, but having clinical trials are very um, in the research world and not everyone has access to them. And so I really wanted to work more in the community and having solutions that are there for individuals to access more easily. And that led me to find Dr. Mary Jung and the Small Steps for Big Changes program, which is a program for individuals who are at risk for type 2 diabetes um, or have prediabetes. So that's a condition that occurs before an individual has type 2 diabetes. Um, so it's where they may have blood sugar levels that are higher than normal, but not yet high enough to be diagnosed as type 2 diabetes. And so 
I, I was really drawn to this program because it's, um, it's a very brief intervention uh, that focuses on empowering individuals to make diet and exercise modifications and make lasting changes so that they can lower their risk of developing type 2 diabetes in the future. And the most interesting part is that Mary partnered with the YMCA and so that the program is accessible in the community for individuals so that they don't have to go to some big university or some program. It's right there at a local YMCA and uh, and they can access it more easily, as I said. And so it fills the gap of um, increasing awareness around prediabetes so that individuals, because um, we know, as Mary just went over, some of the really serious health complications from diabetes. And one of the best things individuals can do is to is to prevent that or delay that onset of type 2 diabetes um, as long as possible. And so this program really helps to increase awareness around diabetes and reducing the risk and also provides a community-based option for at-risk individuals to go to. So you mentioned awareness and prevention or delay and so can you tell us more about all the different aspects of this program? Like how, yeah, how, how do we become people aware now in this program? And how did you decide on what aspects are important for the program? Yeah, so um, individuals, we have a few different recruitment strategies. So one being working with the YMCA to host community-based events. So something like a health assessment day, um, where individuals in the community can go to um, have their health assessed. And one of the things we can do is a diabetes risk questionnaire. We use the American Diabetes Association risk assessment, which is very easy. It's five questions and clients can right away understand their risk for developing type 2 diabetes in the future. Um, and if someone scores a five or higher, then they would be welcome into our program. Um, some other ways, as Mary said, some of the, the blood tests, if an individual has a blood requisition that comes back in the at-risk zone, so between, between 5.7 and 6.4% on that hemoglobin A1C test, um, then an individual is also welcome to our program. Um, but the nice thing is we don't only rely on those blood requisitions because we know that not all individuals um, may be getting that test. Uh, not all physicians will, you know, ask for that their client to have that test done. So having other options like working in the community, working with the YMCA really opens up and allows diabetes awareness to really spread. Okay, and, and how is this received from the YMCA and what happens after you know this test result? So what is the next step for me then? Mm -hmm. So if an individual qualifies for the program, then they're able to enter. And uh, so for small steps for big changes, as I mentioned, it's a, a brief counseling program. And so um, an individual can set up their schedule. And right now we're working with the YMCA. So YMCA coaches have been trained to implement the program. And clients go through six sessions over a brief period, so over three to four weeks. 
And those sessions focus on diet and exercise modifications. Um, so learning, you know, what will work for them in their day-to-day -day life. So they have the opportunity to practice uh, various behavior change techniques. So something like setting goals and they can set goals with their, their counselor um, during sessions. And then they, the program also has home days where they can really act on those goals in their real world environment. So on their own, learning how to implement what they've learned during their session and what will work for them in terms of making sustainable diet and exercise modifications in their everyday life. Talking a little bit more about the program, um, we really focus, uh, one of the main aspects of our program is trying to be client driven. So we really emphasize autonomy and we do this through um, a counseling style that we teach the YMCA coaches called motivational interviewing. And it really puts the client at the forefront of every session. So the, the coach is there really just to listen a lot and help the client um, with their progress through the program. But the client really leads the, se the sessions and the decisions that they make. Um, in what goals they want to do and in what order. And the coach is really there just to support them through the program um, and help them learn as they go. Okay, this is really fascinating. Um, how do you know or how are you taking meaningful outcomes? How do you decide on that in this program? So we have, um, we have a lot of different outcomes. And um, some of them are in terms of what's meaningful in in the area of diabetes prevention. So some markers of maybe program success from the clients, um, more physiological outcomes. So those would be really just, is the program helping individuals make dietary changes or increase their physical activity? And we'll also look at things like weight loss, as well as we do repeat, uh, we do ask clients to go get a hemoglobin A1C test and see if there are any changes there. But even more so than that, we also really care about client satisfaction with the program and their, you know, acceptability. So really doing program evaluation outcomes and making sure that we can tweak the program uh, so that it it's better experience for clients going through. And the other outcome I might just quickly touch on are some implementation outcomes as well, as I you know, briefly mentioned that we are partnered with the YMCA. We're also very interested in learning about you know, how, how did we get the program into the YMCA and how is that working? So there's a lot of different levels of outcomes that we care about in terms of the program. And from an implementation standpoint as well, we really care about, did we train the, the coaches, the YNCA coaches adequately so that they can implement the program with fidelity? So what we call, um, you know, implementing the program as we intended them to implement it, but also outcomes such as do the coaches like implementing the program and things like that. So yeah, like I said, there's a lot of different outcomes that we're interested in from the client's perspective, more from a program perspective and also from an implementation perspective. 
So to summarize, Small Steps for Big Changes is a program designed to help you make changes to your lifestyle to lower your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This program consists of six sessions of one-on-one exercise and dietary change counseling, along with a trained coach over three weeks, and you also do two to four exercise sessions on your own. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, stakeholders seem to be a very important point in this project. Um, and because it's so client-centered, um, Mary, I have a question for you, more on a side, uh, sidebar. Um, would you think in the future this program might be completely digitalized? Or is there any future thoughts already about this program? Oh, it's like you, you read our minds. <laughs> uh, so absolutely. Uh We had, before COVID began, um, we had kind of had started conversations with the company to explore what that might look like, because um, in our overarching goal of making diabetes prevention programs accessible for um, individuals across our country and beyond, um, we recognize that making it virtual would reduce the barrier of access to a physical fitness facility or access to a physical counselor. And so um, COVID silver lining was that it did permit us to uh, invest our time and resources into building a virtual platform for people to go through that one-on-one -on -one training with their coach or their small sets for big changes trainer through video medium or audio medium. So just like, you know, a platform such as Zoom or Microsoft Teams, we have a, a platform to deliver small steps for big changes. And the, the other portion that we had to build if we we're going to deliver it virtually is we needed to train the coaches virtually as well. Um, and so that was another big project that we completed over COVID, which was creating our once was face-to-face -face train the trainer program into a completely virtual interactive uh, program for for those who want to become trainers of small steps for big changes uh, to have that uh, training or certification to do so. So I think that it will help us you know, achieve those goals of greater reach um, to those who need a program the most from now into the future. Um, we know that People who are immunocompromised are um, going to be less likely uh, comfortable in a physical space with lots of other people. So I think this is a good move for us. It sounds like there are really big plans. And nowadays, there are a lot of platforms um, that makes things like this possible. Um, so we look forward to see where the program is going in the future. Um, where's the project at right now? What stage are you at? Oh my goodness, we've got so many great, great parts of the project, I guess, going on. We, we call it, yeah, a program of research because really it's uh, something that is just taking up um, more and more steam and momentum and, and going in a variety of, of outlets. So, you know, as Tina mentioned, um, her PhD is, is focused on the implementation science about how do we, How, how do we best serve the community organizations that we partner with? And um, how do we make this a smooth process that is not only something that they're really happy with and that is beneficial to them, but also that, um, that is sustainable. And so that's a big part of it. Um, and the other pieces about the virtual program being run is um, we're launching that pilot um, this month so that we can um, start testing how effective small steps for big changes is 
when it's run virtually as compared to face-to-face. And we're also expanding our Small Steps for Big Changes program into other cities. And um, some of those those cities are, again, we can assess how well it does when we're not physically there. Um, but some of those, I shouldn't say cities, I should say communities, because some of the expansion sites are rural communities. And so we're really interested to see what different factors impact the effectiveness of the program when it's run in areas that literally are not cities and and have different barriers to completion, different populations. So lots of exciting uh, pieces going through. And and the final other, I suppose, big one for us right now is um, assessing the the virtual train-the-trainer model and um, making sure it's just as effective as our face-to-face training. Um, Tinika, when you translate this program into the different YMCAs, like what contextual factors led to the tweaking to make it kind of personalized for each site? Yeah, so with my PhD, we we looked at um, really how to get the program into two local YMCA sites. And as you mentioned, we were really curious about some of those contextual factors about, you know, what is going to make this work. And so it's really looking at, again, from these multiple levels, there's so many ways that a program can be successfully implemented from, you know, the coaches, do they, do they like the program? Is it acceptable to them? Um, Is it feasible within the YMCA? So also within the YMCA culture, um, does you know, the YMCA as an organization, does it fit well with the Small Steps for Big Changes program? And all the way to the community level, and um, does the program work with the YMCA? Does it fit their their vision, their mission, their values as a community-based organization? And so we saw that kind of all of those contextual factors that I tried to outline at different levels really came into play as we were translating the program. And so it was so important, our strong partnership with the YMCA and that the Small Steps for Big Changes program was a really good fit for their organization as they are driven to really, they want to benefit the community and they want to improve the health of those in the community. And we see that really fits well with the Small Steps for Big Changes program and kind of everything down to the coaches. And they wanted to learn small steps. They wanted to learn motivational interviewing so that they can be better, almost YMCA staff and use those skills in other places in the YMCA. So yeah, we definitely looked at a lot of different contextual factors from multiple levels. And uh, we were really excited to see the 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 strength of the partnership coming through on so many different aspects of the context and how the program could really adapt to be welcome and part of the YMCA programming. Since Mary mentioned uh, that the program, uh, you look also to implement it in areas that are not that accessible in Canada, for example, is the YMCA available there? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Like, would you have the opportunity to keep working with the YMCA to implement it in those uh, cities that are not that accessible? Maybe I'll, I'll jump in here and, and say, yeah, the, that's a great question. And what the plan is, is when we have the opportunity to work and train individuals who are YMCA staff and volunteers, 
when we deliver it virtually, then this again kind of opens the floodgates. It opens the doors for us to be able to work with individuals um, who live in different jurisdictions. But it also allows us to uh, reach out to YMCA staff and volunteers who may not work in a health and fitness facility, but work in one of the other departments within YMCAs. So for example, in some of the smaller rural communities, many in Canada at least um, might have something like a YMCA young adulthood uh, job training or uh, work employment um, office where YMCA staff in those sectors are serving their community in that domain of um, job skills, etc. There's also a lot of uh, YMCA early childhood care centers. So for example, that provide uh, daycare and before and after school services. So it, it kind of shakes it up a little bit and says, yeah, we actually don't need a, a you know, a 10,000 square foot beautiful fitness facility to be able to counsel people and, and like Tianka said, empower individuals um, to make the choices in their own diet that work best for them. And and we can ha- act as guides, if you will, to to helping them make the decisions that will reduce their risk of, of type two diabetes and, you know, on the same side of, you know, not needing a beautiful fitness facility with fancy equipment. We also don't need um, individuals to, you know, have years and years of experience being a personal trainer to be able to be a really good counselor to somebody um, to be able to be trained uh, to have good conversations that will enable people to, to make changes in their diet. So their diet and exercise so it, it kind of alleviates the bottleneck of having costly skilled trainers with oodles noodles of degrees then it reduces the bottleneck of insisting that it takes physically place at a at a fitness facility yes and uh, we realize that in our own research too this uh, accessibility and also simplicity for access um, in other cities or generally overall canada is so important And um, we can definitely relate to that. Um, So, Tineke, Sarah asked a little bit about um, feasibility already. And we were wondering, why is feasibility important when conducting these trials? Feasibility is so important, especially if the goal is to have a long-term sustainable program. And so um, that, that was one of our big goals is that, you know, Generally, when when we think about research um, in the past, like things like clinical trials kind of have a very short shelf life. Um, They help some people and then the program's over. But when you're thinking about sustainable community-based programming, you want it to last a long time. And so having a program that is feasible to implement, so it's, you know, it's not too hard for the YMCA coaches to learn the program and to be able to excel at implementing it. And that makes a big difference when we see, okay, if the coaches are confident and able to implement the program, they'll implement it better. (laughs) And that means the clients will have access to a higher quality program. So that clients, you know, it trickles down to the clients and the impact that they have uh, from enrolling in the program. So aspects of feasibility are super important and just making sure that it's, you know, as easy to implement, but also effective. Things like Mary talked about, you know, the train the trainer program that we had is a great program to help that has been shown that the coaches do learn through the 
the program, the training, sorry. And um, we looked at fidelity. So we looked at whether the coaches implement the program the way that we taught them to. And some of my PhD work shows that, yes, they implemented it almost 90%, which is very, very big for um, a community-based translation study. And so that gives us so much confidence that as we implement to new sites, um, that future sites will also, you know, feasibly be able to implement the program and have success that we can see those those factors, those success factors trickle down to the client and having an impact on um, diabetes prevention. Yeah, I think you really highlight that, especially when working with community partners such as the YMCA, it's important to have those kind of key indicators to kind of keep track of things. So we've talked a lot about the YMCA as a partner. Were there any other kind of stakeholders involved with the study, either with the study design or the implementation side? Yes. So um, as part of Mary's work, she has helped to develop a participant advisory committee as well as a stakeholder advisory committee. And so we love to hear from others on how we can do better. And so um, the participant advisory committee would be made up of clients who have gone through the program. So they have experience in the program. They've, um, you know, they have, they are at risk for type two diabetes. Um, so they can really give meaningful impact input on um, how we can, if we need to make modifications to the program, we can listen to them and how we can do better. Um, and same thing with the stakeholder advisory committee, in including YMCA, but also um, some interior health individuals. And again, making sure that the program can fit uh, the needs of the community um, so that we can better serve the residents of Kelowna. Awesome. And when you're working with these stakeholders, how did you win them over to become a part of the um, research group to continue improving and providing their input to this study? Yeah, so we love to have various community events um, or celebrations where we can provide updates and feedback on the program so far. So as we are preparing for the, the YMCA pilot that I guess made up my PhD, we had a year of planning um, to work with the YMCA, but we also planned some big events where we invited stakeholders to come and we could share all of the amazing outcomes so far, provide updates, and also have some time for that engagement with the different stakeholder advisory groups. So um, we win them over with demonstrating the success, so showing them some of our outcomes so far, and having, you know, at those events, we usually try and have clients who feel comfortable enough to share some of their experiences. So we, you know, invite people from the participant advisory group to be at those events so that they can share their firsthand experience to, so we're not telling all the stakeholders why the program's so great, but clients who went through the program have their time in the spotlight as well to talk about what they enjoyed so much and why the program is important to them. I think that firsthand storytelling of their experience is also so important. And I definitely see that also in my own study and just kind of hearing that. I don't know about you, it kind of made me feel good being like, oh, 
what I, this is what I was part of and it did have like a tangible impact. So that's really, really cool. Um, and based on um, the advisory group's input, what were some of the changes that, if any, that you had to make to Small Steps for Big Change due to the input that you've received from either the participant advisory committee or the stakeholder advisory group? Maybe I'll jump in here, um, Tinika, and then I'll pass it back to you. But one of the, the ones that I'll never forget is uh, our first participant advisory committee was comprised of people who had gone through our first, I guess, official testing of the program. And one of the things uh, we thought was well, we, we maybe should change the name. And uh, we probably, my <laughs> the bad ideas come from me. And so I, I was considering calling it proactive and proactive was going to be this long acronym. And I can't even remember what it stands for now. And, but I thought this was a really, you know, wow, proactive, you know, it makes sense, but it's also a really great acronym, which we love to publish in journals. And basically, they came back to me and were like, absolutely not. That's a silly name. Small Sets for Big Change is way better. <laughs> and, and so I I just, I guess from the get-go, I, I, I just respected and, and recognized how valuable their input is. And, and, and now, years later, I think, oh, my gosh, I, how could I have ever <laughs> thought of changing it to, to anything but Small Sets for Big Changes? So... They were they were awesome. And then the other one example I'll give from my end on the stakeholder advisory committee is they we were discussing, you know, do we need to change the costing model? So we offer it for free for everybody. And that's very much on purpose to reduce, of course, the financial uh, barrier. And we proposed to both the participant in the stakeholder committee, you know, is this something that we should change for the longevity of the program, make it a fee-based model or what have you. And, um, you know, the participants who had gone through the program had said, this is so valuable, I would be willing to pay. We brought that to the stakeholder advisory committee and they all said, absolutely not. You know, this, you know, they see the value only because they've gone through it and not, be, you know, somebody coming in to the program who's a community member. So I really valued that advice from our stakeholders and uh, the program has remained free since the beginning because of their feedback. Have there been any points when the two advisory groups provided kind of conflicting feedback? And if so, how did you balance, I guess, moving forward with both of them, both of their differing views? Yeah, I mean, this is a, um, a minor one, I suppose. Um, so we, we take everything to those boards, <laughs> those committees. So when we were establishing a more official logo, that this is down to the minutia of, of font sizes and colors. Um, there was disagreement amongst the committees. And we went to, because we were using a, a third-party graphic designer, we allowed the final decision to rest with them. Um, <laughs> but more, I guess, distinct or specific to the program, we haven't had um, much dispute. In um, I think they recognize they are bringing different expertise and lived experiences to it. So for example, when we were, you know, exploring, do we need to modify the program? The participants always want to say, you know, longer. Um, they love their coaches. They love their time. <laughs> and uh, the people who are stakeholders don't have that experience of going through the program. So they they default just, you know, as we do, listen with open ears to to the participants who've gone through it. Fair enough. And how do you recruit uh, members for, our, for both the advisory groups? And 
even when participating in the study, how do you reach out to the right population that you're trying to get to participate in the Small Steps or Big Change program? Sure, I'll, I'll talk about the Stakeholder Advisory Committee and maybe Tinika can cover how we get people into PAC. So there, we really strive to get a um, diversity of experience and expertise on that Stakeholder Advisory Committee. Um, and I suppose as it sounds, so somebody who has stake in the game or, or somebody who's um, a potential decision maker that could impact the, the program in, in any way, whether it's running it, the longevity of it, the advertisement, if you will, or um, referral process. So we have been strategic in, in that front. We've purposefully invited um, members of the healthcare um, provider side of things, so physicians, as well as um, in members of the health authority um, who can broadcast network shared news, if you will, of the program. Um, and then also our YMCA managerial team is outstanding and we just so value, of course, they're an absolute critical part of our of our solution to diabetes prevention. So um, I think it's really integral to have multiple members from the YMCA there. And then individuals who um, come from a business standpoint who can inform our program, well, I suppose, like I already mentioned, things like the cost modeling and, uh, and how we might be exploring expansion. I guess those are our, our big uh, sectors that we invite to the Stakeholder Advisory Committee. Yeah, so for the participant advisory committee, really um, any client who has gone through the program is welcome to join that if they wish. Um, so we do make that available to them. And also anytime that we have a meeting coming up or maybe even a celebratory event where past participants are invited to, uh, we make sure that during the event, um, say if the Sometimes we hold them after the event, the meeting. Um, we make sure that there's the open call so that if there are any clients who, you know, haven't enlisted in the advisory committee, still have the option if they'd like to attend that meeting. Um, so it's very, very open and uh, we love hearing from as many clients as possible. Fantastic. So we really covered kind of the breadth and depth of the project, the stakeholder piece. And now I want to ask you, what is your next step for big change? What's your ultimate vision and both the small, short-term and the long-term goals? Oh my goodness. I have a big smile on my face. Um, you know, I think we're closer than we ever have been as a team to really being a, a force in diabetes prevention across Canada and beyond. And so the, the long-term vision, which Tinica uh, and our partners at the YMCA have been busy establishing our, our uh, five-year strategic plan, is, is to be the referral program for anybody in Canada who has uh, pre-diabetes or is at risk of type 2 diabetes um, so that we're recognized by the healthcare providers as a um, reputable, um, trusted, evidence-based program to decisively reduce risk in any individual who has, who has pre-diabetes or is at risk. So expansion is big on the horizon and very much in, in the process. 
that I suppose I would consider that long term. And our, our, our short-term goals are, are about beta testing and perfecting those awesome virtual pieces that I, I mentioned, the platform to train the trainers virtually and to deliver the program virtually. Um, as you can imagine, there's been um, a lot of final tweaking that has had to occur in developing a system that you know can send everything from automated texts to um, opening up a HIPAA and FIPA compliant um, platform, which can be reported for for quality assurance, and uh, all those pieces have been uh, in the makes for the last sixteen months, I guess. Um, but we still have some final tweak- tweaking to do. And I'd love to be able to say in a couple months, yes, this is just as effective as, as our face-to-face. So also short term is, is uh, for me, is, is Tina kind of graduating, but hopefully staying with us as she continues on in her academic training. Because as she mentioned, she's starting her fourth year of her, of her PhD now. Um, and just getting able to, being able to work with uh, these great people for longer is, it's a goal of mine. <laughs> Selfish goal. I really love hearing all those goals. What is the long-term goal for the patient or someone who is at risk? So what is the goal of, for me, um, not me, but anyone who is at risk? What, for example, in 10 years can that person look forward to? Okay, so I'll take a stab at this. <laughs> um, so the long-term goal is to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes for as long as possible. And we know that there's strong evidence that helping individuals make diet and exercise modifications can delay, can prevent the onset. And that would be a fabulous goal if we can see uh, prevalence of type 2 diabetes go down in the future. Um, I think I answered it, but Mary, please jump in if you want to add anything. <laughs> No, yeah, that that's it for sure. And it's a great question, Isabel, that we, we want to be very upfront and, and answering that, you know, we, we're staving off these numbers and really remarkable uh, percentages our results are so far. Um, and right now we only have those up to one year, but we really are um, looking forward to answering the five-year question and the 10-year question down the road as you know, have people continued to stave off type 2 diabetes for, for years and years to come. Um, that unfortunately just takes time. We just have to wait <laughs> for those markers to come in and for us to have enough people through at that at that 10-year mark, but for sure. And uh, one final piece, I get, I know you, you asked about the individual, but I, I can't help but mention the, our partner organization and saying, you know, there, there's big five and 10-year goals for us with them too. And, and, and that is for them to be able to say at the 10-year mark, you know, yeah, we're so happy we're still working with small steps for big changes. That This has been and this continues to be such a valued program for us to run. Um, and so the individual YMCA staff, I want them to continually be happy at five and 10 years that, that we get to work together. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all the information about your research study, um, all the stakeholder advisory groups, participant advisory committees, all of those things. It's been a really great conversation just learning more. Uh, We'll be sure to add their information in the description below, as well as how to join Small Steps for Big Change as we are now transitioning to post-COVID and face-to-face is back online. 
So we'll put all that information below. And thank you again to Mary and Tunica for our lovely conversation today. That's it for today, right from the heart of Vancouver. Thanks to UBC AMS for supporting this podcast. Keep in touch in the meanwhile on Twitter at Raincoat Podcast. Till next time. Stay dry and stay safe.